Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Shackman. Most of you have heard the story about the guy working in the circus whose job it was to clean up behind the elephant. Every day, more mess. It was backbreaking work. It smelled bad, and it hardly seemed rewarding. Every day, he would tell his friends how unpleasant the job was. One day, someone finally confronted him and said, why don't you just quit? Certainly, there were other jobs you could find. He turned to his friend and said, what, and give up show business? Certainly, the lure of show business is irrefutable. But it's one of those businesses where the assets go home each night. Not just the stars, but the hardworking men and women who make magic happen, who each play a singular and unique role in telling cinematic stories. Each individual, from the stars to the folks that bring the coffee, are a piece of a critical puzzle. And without each piece, the picture never comes together. The coming into focus of that picture is our subject today, as I'm joined by Bruce Ferber to talk about his new book, The Way We Work. Bruce Ferber is an Emmy and Golden Globe-nominated comedy writer-producer. His credits include Bosom Buddies, Coach, Sabrina the Teenage Witch, and Home Improvement. He's also the author of two novels, and it is my pleasure to welcome Bruce Ferber here to talk about The Way We Work, On the Job in Hollywood. Bruce, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Jeff. Pleasure to be with you. Well, it's a delight to have you here. Tell us about this. It is a series of, of stories, a series of contributions that, that many people in Hollywood have written. You've written one and, and edited this volume. Tell us a little bit about its, its origin. The origin is, is sort of interesting. I mean, it came out of the, the comedy writers' rooms uh, that I had been in over the years, and I did it for over two decades. And basically, in a comedy writer's room, you're sitting there with, you know, pretty much a minimum of eight writers, uh, and you're spending many, many hours together, not just writing the show, but sharing everything from your personal life to your show business history. And in these sessions, uh, writers would inevitably tell their Hollywood stories, and many of which were hysterical, some of which were very sad. And, um, you know, years later, after writing a couple of novels and, and being sick of being alone in a room, coming up with my own stuff, I thought, you know what, I gotta get out, I gotta do something different, I, I gotta be am among people and hear other people's stories. So my idea originally, Jeff, was to do a documentary called One Hollywood Story, and it would allow all these people that I had met in the business over the years to tell just maybe their favorite story about working in Hollywood. And I thought this was the greatest idea ever, and then I realized that when I was done putting it together, I would have 90 minutes of talking heads, and that many of those heads wouldn't look like Bradley Cooper or Jennifer Lawrence. <laughs> They'd look you know, kind of like me. <laughs> and uh, that would not exactly be Black Panther at the, at the box office. Uh, and then I thought, well, okay, I'll just get, you know, clips from these people's work to, to make it visually interesting. And then I realized that one clip could cost me as much as making the entire movie. So I, I threw the whole idea out uh, and, you know, just didn't think twice about it. And then in between writing novels, I... Um, I wrote this essay for this book called Los Angeles in the 1970s, which was an anthology of people's experiences being in L.A. and what L.A. was like back then. 
And then after writing it, and, and mine was about me coming to Hollywood, and I thought, wait a minute, maybe this is an anthology. It's a book. And so that's how that idea came to be. And then as I started digging into it further, I realized that I didn't want it to be just writers. And I wanted writers in it, but I wanted to be a little more inclusive and get people from all these different aspects of the business to share their stories. And my my idea going in was that not everybody has a whole memoir in them, but everybody has a mini memoir because everybody has a story to tell. And that's how this, so I have people from above the line, writers, directors, producers, actors, and people from below the line, everybody from the costume designer to the animal trainer. It's informative for people that are in the business, but for people that aren't, it really provides a kind of of an explanation of the end credits of a movie that they often sit and watch, sometimes don't, but understanding what everybody does and how it all comes together in this kind of very convoluted but critical dance. True, and, and it's amazing in many of the interviews. So what it is, it's essays from the writers and a couple of other people and interviews with the below the line people. And it's, it's amazing in how many of these interviews people say, nobody understands what I do. Everybody thinks it's glamorous, but nobody gets what I do. The script supervisor, when she tells people she's a script supervisor, they think that means she's a writer because it has the word script in the title. A little like the guy uh, cleaning up after the elephant at the circus. One of the things in this volume is that, as you say, it's not just the stars and the writers and the directors, but it really is the people that that do the the day-to-day work, the ordinary work. Talk a little bit about that part of the book. Well, that was inspired by the great book Working by Studs Terkel, which is like an 800-page volume uh, where he, I, I don't know how many years he spent compiling that book, but it is so detailed and so brilliant, and getting it, and this is where he he interviewed people from every single job in America, and and his basic question was, how do you feel about what you do for a living? And this is a question that I've kind of been obsessed with. My my second novel, Cascade Falls, is all based around that premise. It's it's about a guy who tried to be in show business. He tried to be a successful writer. Um, And along the way, he got married and had kids, but then it didn't work out for him. And he had to do work that was pretty much unsatisfying. So what is that like? What goes on in a person's mind? How do they relate to their family if they're not feeling really good about what they do? And and in my research, I found that 80% of people working in America hate their jobs, which is, you know, an astounding number. Um, so a lot of that and just the process of working and, and how people feel about what they do was part of my motivation for the book. And in a sense, pretty much every book that I write, fiction or nonfiction, You know, it's interesting. There's so much talk today about the gig economy. In many ways, this has been a gig economy (laughs) in Hollywood long before the term ever came to be. 
Yes, and thankfully, though, we had unions that started early on. Uh, people keep trying to bust them up, but we had unions, and uh, they protected us within the gig economy. These other people today are not as lucky as we are. Mm-hmm. One of the other things about it is that there is a certain degree of insecurity that's inherent in the work, and, and a lot of the, the people that contribute to this volume talk about that. Yeah, because, you know, you're kind of at the mercy of, you know, it's such a sub- art is subjective, and some people can love your script, some people can hate it. I mean, to me, uh, I've never done any serious kind of acting, but I cannot imagine what that feels like. I mean, and, and, and you know, I, I certainly know enough actors, and I'm, I have a bunch of them in the book, and how they build that shell you know, against the rejection, uh, it, it's got to be so tough, and especially tough, I think, for the women uh, in the business who can start out as ingenues, and then one day their agent calls, you know, they want you for a mommy role, and and the actress <laughs> thinks, but, you know, I'm only, you know, uh, I'm still, I'm only 32, you know, and, and this is, it's constant, and, and, the, the competition just gets worse and worse. And because of the movies that are being made today, there are less opportunities for people, middle-aged people. Um, there are not as many roles. Everything is, is youth-oriented and action-oriented. And, you know, one of, one of my big things that, that you know, I, I would love to write a book about this. I don't know if there's a whole book in it. There's certainly an article about it, and, and it may have been addressed, but one of the things that really bothers me about the business today is that even in the world of animation, they have, they've shut out all of the great voice actors to get celebrities. So in other words, to make a Pixar film, to make a uh, an animated film that's going to go in the theaters, you have to have uh, you know, Ray Romano as the polar bear, you can't have what would be the modern day equivalent of a Mel Blanc or a Dawes Butler, all these people that used to, that was their craft. And now everything is so celebrity driven. And to me, it, it, it's sad. It, it, it's taken work away from a lot of people because those, those celebrities work anyway. They make a lot of money doing their live action movies. The importance of fame and celebrity and even being famous for being famous, to what extent has that filtered down, do you think, to other parts of the business beyond just the actors? Oh, God. I mean, it's just infected society. You know, I mean, nobody reads anymore. It's just this whole idea of... I mean, I guess there are writers who are famous for being famous, but, you know, I mean, you kind of have to know how to put a script together to, to, to get something, somebody to, to put a lot of money into it. And, yeah, there are a lot of bad movies made. But the whole notion of that you don't have to have any talent to be famous is, I guess it's the worst thing that's happened because people... Or I have, you know, somebody down the block from me. That just now, they, you know, they tear down these original houses and put up these McMansions. And somebody pointed out this house that they built on this property 
that is like 6,000 square feet, and one woman lives in the house, a young woman. And what does she do? She's an Instagram influencer. So <laughs> between the influencers and the YouTube stars, uh, it's just it's just kind of, I don't know, it's taken the whole society down a notch, in my opinion. The other part of this, though, is that at least on that level, on the celebrity level, the fame level, there there is a certain fleeting quality to all of it. You can be doing well one day and, and, and be ice cold the next. So interesting, those people that work below the line, those people that work on movies, and, and you see it in, in what they've written about in, uh, in The right. Way We Work— there is a certain long-term view of, of the business. I mean, yeah, the work has changed. The insecurity is there. The gig economy part of it is there. But there is a certain consistency, at least. Yeah, and I mean, a lot of the people in the, the, the below-the-line people in this book had been doing it for a while, and they have, you know, just like actors come to terms with all the rejection, they have come to terms with what they need to do to get the next job. And some of the below-the-line people now have agents to help them. Uh, a lot of them still don't. And they just rely on their relationships and doing good work. And the one thing that struck me in doing this this book, uh, with the exception of maybe one person, <laughs> um, is the pride that everybody takes in, in doing a good job. And that no matter what their job is, they feel that they provide a valuable contribution, and they do. Mm-hmm. Talk a little bit about how their views, I mean, you get a sense of this a little bit, how they're, what you sense their view, how their views of Hollywood have changed over the years. I think their view has changed because they see that it's gotten tougher, and, and they see that, I think the ones who have been in it for a while feel they're lucky they got in it when they did mm. and and how they feel now is they're just trying to grind out as much as they can while they can until either they're sick of the business or the business is sick of them because that's one thing that happens to everybody and you have to know that that will come at a certain point that you will tire of it or they will tire of you maybe it'll happen simultaneously but everyone has to be prepared for that moment. And, you know, for particularly for the above-the-line people, the actors, the producers, the directors, who, you know, are kind of, when they're doing it, they're powerful people. And when it all goes away, what I've learned, and I've, you know, I've seen it among my friends, I've had to deal with all of this, that when you're, because I no longer am in sitcom rooms, I haven't run a show in a really long time, I don't know if I ever will again, when that it gets taken away from you, when you no longer have 200 people saying, Bruce, what do I do now? Bruce, what do I do now? You have to be pretty comfortable with who you are as a human being, you know, alone in a room, and say, you know, I'm okay. I, I, don't, need, I don't need all of this. I don't need to be... Uh, famous for being famous or, or famous at all, because uh, in the end, I, I like who I am, and that's really important. And one of the things that addresses is the whole idea of, of ageism. I knew uh, a producer once who uh, died at a relatively young age, but had always been trying to make himself younger because of the nature of the mm-hmm. business. 
And at a memorial service for him, I'll never forget, they were, you know, 10, 15 people sitting around talking about him. And nobody was sure, and these were close friends, but nobody was sure how old he really was because he had <laughs> lied about his age so much for uh, so long. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, ageism, we certainly felt it in the comedy world. There was a certain point, you know. I mean, I think some older writers, comedy writers, are working again. Um, Chuck Lorre, in particular, uh seems to like to hire people who have a lot of experience. And so if you walk into the Chuck Lorre building at Warner Brothers, you know, if I walk in, I'll see names that I remember from when I started. And it's like, or, or from before I started, and I think, wow, this guy's still working. That, that's cool that, that this guy's being hired, you know. So, but, but that is, I think it's the exception rather than the rule, at least in terms of comedy. The drama writers seem to have uh, a longer lifespan in the business mm-hmm. and, and always have. Tell us a little bit about some of the people that contributed to the volume. Well, it, it, it runs the gamut. Uh, you know, it, it, the thing, when I was working on this book, after a year of working on it and having 41 different contributors, I was just sort of, it was just still kind of a mess because I hadn't figure out, figured out how I was going to organize this. And then one day, I just spent the entire day coming up with sections of the book to, to unify the different pieces. And when I finally found that, it, it all kind of came together. So the first section of the book is called The Story, and I have pieces from Robert Town and J.J. Abrams, who everybody knows, uh, Seth Freeman, who was a very uh, prolific television writer-producer, wrote a piece about finding how, to, how writers find their story. And then a writer named David Kukoff, who's a screenwriter, wrote about the period in Hollywood history when all the scripts they wanted were high concept, which were, you know, the, the, of like the talking baby, look who's talking. And <laughs> it, it, it just went on and on. He actually wrote things about a talking house. I, I mean, I mean it, it, and people thought that this was what America wanted to see. I guess for a short period of time they were right, and thankfully that went away. <laughs> so, so the, those were you know some of the writers' contributions that I have, and one of my favorite pieces in this book it's an essay by a guy who was an associate director, associate producer, and unit uh, UPM on Sabrina the Teenage Witch, and my intention was simply to interview him about, you know, his job. And in the course of our conversation, he told me, oh, I got the greatest stories and I'm writing my memoir. And so I said, tell me some of your stories. And he told me this fantastic story that's in the book uh, about his first job as a Director's Guild trainee, where he was basically a production assistant working on a movie called The Frisco Kid with Gene Wilder, where Gene Wilder plays an Orthodox rabbi in the Wild West. And when they shot in town, they had religious advisors to advise Gene on how to 
act like an Orthodox Jew, even though Gene, Gene was Jewish, he didn't know, you know, all of those rules. And then suddenly they're out on location, and they have nobody who knows how to do this, except this fellow Herb, who was raised Orthodox in Brooklyn. And they find this out, and they shove him in the trailer with the star Gene Wilder, who tells him, uh, you know, I have this scene where I want to curse at the chickens, and I want to curse at them in Yiddish. How do I do that? And Herb says, well, I don't speak Yiddish, I speak Hebrew, but my father in Crown Heights, Brooklyn, speaks uh, Yiddish. Uh, and he says, call your father, call your father. So he, he gets on the phone to call his father in Brooklyn, and he gets his mother on the phone, and he says, hey, it's Herb. And his mother says, how come you never call? And starts guilting him about that. And meanwhile, so he's with Gene Wilder trying to find out from his father how to curse at chickens in Yiddish. And it's a very, very funny story. One of the things that, that comes through, and I know you talk about this, is the idea that no matter how corporate the business has become, there is something about it that defies kind of corporate culture. Talk about that. Well, I think that's the thing that keeps people in this in this world. Um, you know, because otherwise it's just too hard going from gig to gig. And it's, you know, these challenges that, that seem impossible. There's a costumer, uh, Katie Sparks, who wrote something in, in the book, uh, who worked on Arrested Development, which was a show that was always, you know, one of these last-minute things. The script was never ready. And she had to... There was a, a, a joke in the script where one of the characters played by David Cross is wearing a shirt and he stands, he's in this apartment and he stands in front of the wallpaper in the apartment and the shirt he's wearing is the same pattern as the wallpaper. And she had to, you know, she got the script like that day for the next morning. She had to deliver it. And, and they said, well, can you come up with this? And she says, sure. And then she walks away and her assistant says, well, do you know how you're going to do this? She says, I have no idea. But, you know, she stays up all night. She figures out a way to do it. It, she, she, it, it, it uh, appears on the set and it gets a huge laugh. And she feels so incredibly satisfied because it challenged her to come up with something uh, and figure out a way to do something to make this magic happen, and she made the magic happen. Do you sense, after having done this and read everybody's pieces and been been immersed in this for so long, that the business really is sui generis, that it really is not like any other business? You know, I mean, that was the way it was for me. And um, there are people on the business side who will say, no, 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 it's all about money, and, and, and it's like there's a bottom line, and, and that's what it is. And I mean, I, I think it, it it pretty much stands alone in that the reason being that it, even though it's commerce, the fact that there's art involved, I mean, there's a lot of money on the line, but there are still people who have to create original things and original material and make magic. And as long as there's magic there, it's not going to be like other businesses. Bruce Ferber, the book is The Way We Work, On the Job in Hollywood. Bruce, I thank you so much for spending some time with us. Thank you, Jeff. I really appreciate it. It was a lot of fun. Thank you.